0: You ever ask yourself when talking about the faith, like, what's the point? What, what's the end goal here that we are moving towards with faith, with salvation? Let me ask a, a broader question then. What is the goal of every single human being on this planet? What are we called to do? And the biblical worldview says that we have a king. That Not, not only that, we have a creator, and so therefore, as that is the case, we are called then to worship that king and that creator. For if it were not for him, we wouldn't be here because he created us. It's only right and proper if God truly exists and he is then truly our king and creator. By nature, we are called to worship him. One theologian said there's two columns. There's the creator and there's the created things. And by nature, the created things have to worship the creator. Because again, were it not for him, they would not even exist. To think of him then is to glorify him, to think of him as our highest good and our source of all things. But we sinned. We sinned, and therefore that worship then is disconnected because of sin. We cannot worship. And so before we can worship, we need something else. We need salvation. We need reconciliation. And in Romans 9 through 11, Paul has been talking about the depths of the wisdom and mystery of God's plan of salvation. And today, he's going to bring it all to a close and show us the end goal of salvation. What is the end goal of salvation? What does that have to do with worship? Let's find out together. Hopefully, you're in Romans chapter 11. We have been rocking through the book of Romans. If you are visiting with us, that's what we do. We go through books of the Bible we preach verse by verse, and hopefully the main point of my sermon is the main point of the passage. I don't go to a text, pull out, everybody's going to roll their eyes, five ways to have a happier Monday, and then try to find 58 verses and pull them out of context to prove my point. No, the scripture has the point. My, my goal is to kind of reveal that and let the Holy Spirit then do the work of applying it. Last week, we looked at how God works His global plan of salvation to bring all people to Himself. What is the nature of God's people? We rejoice in God's global plan of salvation. We know we only become God's people because God has done so for us. And we know that we are to persevere in the faith that God has called us to. But how does that plan work in accordance with the nation of Israel? Paul's been talking about Israel for three chapters now. And how Israel works into this plan and the Gentiles. Last week we saw there's one tree, one people of God. The people of God is no longer just Israel, but anyone who would come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. So does Israel then have any special place at all in the future of God's redemptive plan? Short answer, yes. And let's see how that all works together for God's glory. Paul is about to drop a summary of everything he's been saying for the last two chapters. Look at 11. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery, brothers. Here it is. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so just pause there. Paul continues his explanation from where we left off last week, writing prim- primarily to the Gentiles and explaining the mystery of salvation, of God's plan, how it works with both of those groups, right? Right? Jewish history, Jewish mind, there's two groups in the whole world. There's Jews and there's everybody else. Everybody else are the Gentile bucket. And so how does that work with those two groups? He cautions the Gentiles, as he did last week in verse 18, he's like, hey guys, don't be arrogant about the fact that you were once not the people of God and that God grafted you into the people of God. Don't be arrogant towards Israel because some of them got snapped off because they did not believe in the Messiah. Don't let that go to your head. Don't look down upon those branches that God broke off because guess what? He's got a plan for some of them. Same thing in verse 25. He says, don't be, don't be too big for your britches here, Gentiles. Don't be wise in your own sight. Don't be unaware of what God is actually doing here. He calls it a mystery. But let's not think of mystery like an episode of Scooby-Doo or Cold Case Files. I just totally showed my age right there. A mystery is not something that's like impossible to find out. Biblically, a mystery is something that has been hidden and is now revealed. That's what a, a biblical definition of mystery is. Primarily, Paul uses the term mystery to refer to the plan of salvation. And think think really of the Messiah. Think about the Old Testament. Think about being a Jew in the Old Testament. Who is the Messiah? Where is he going to come? What's he going to look like? When is he going to come? How do we believe in the Messiah? What is he going to look like? All of that is now revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is revealed as the mystery. But Paul also applies this mystery to the plan of God for salvation in its entirety. He explains further. You see, Gentiles, here's the mystery a partial or temporary hardening has come upon you guys, or come upon Israel rather, until all the elect from all the other nations, the Gentiles, have been saved and thus revealed. So did you catch that? He says, here's the mystery. Israel has received a partial hardening until everybody else who is elect, all the other Gentiles, are brought in. That's, that's what the mystery is. That's what he, he wants them to keep in mind. Recall in verse 7, Paul said that the Jews, who were still trying to obtain righteousness by obedience to the law, failed to get it. But the Gentiles did. They received it through grace, through faith. The rest of the Jews, he said, were hardened. That's who he's talking about here. He's talking about those who were hardened in verse 7. He's talking about those branches that have been snapped off and are now on the ground from the tree of God, the nation of Israel. Now it turns out that there is a partial, temporary, Hardening that has come upon Israel. Until when? Well, until all the elect Gentiles, all who are actually God's people, all who are supposed to believe in Jesus Christ by faith, come to faith. That's what he said. All who are brought in. And then he drops a wonderfully confusing statement in verse 26. Look at this. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So the big giant question here that has perplexed commentators and biblical nerds for generations is what does he mean by all Israel? There's three main options. First, he means or could mean all Israel, meaning every single Jewish person just because they have an Israel passport. Some people will go as far as say, every single Jewish person that ever lived, even the ones that are not living right now, will be saved. And then, okay, well, what if they refuse to come to Christ? Maybe some would take that view further and say, well, there's another way. God will provide another way for those Jews to be saved. I hope you will join me in immediately rejecting this interpretation. Paul has been completely clear that there is salvation in one and only one way. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we do not see this as every single person who is a Jew. In addition, we said last week that the current nation of Israel is not the same thing as biblical Israel. What we see on the news today, the geographic nation of Israel is not biblical Israel. By and large. Why? Because Israel has rejected Jesus Christ. So how can they be the people of God if they have rejected Jesus Christ? The new covenant has superseded the old covenant. We went into that last week. We also saw Paul previously telling us that not all Israel are actually legit Israel. Just because you have a driver's license from Israel doesn't mean you're actually legit follower of God you have to believe in Jesus Christ. So that's one interpretation. The second one means that all Israel means the elect from both Jews and Gentiles, which is a possibility. It certainly is theologically true that the elect will call on the name of Jesus and be saved, but contextually I think this fails too. This is actually where I was probably until Thursday, right? We're we're, we're splitting hairs a little bit in this because it's technically true. Of course, all of the elect are going to be saved. We know that. That's that God God tells us that he promises. But there's a nuance here and I think this third interpretation makes the most sense. What Paul seems to mean here is that all Israel, meaning all in the sense of the majority or a very large number of Jews alive at a particular time will finally come to Christ. This squares with how the Bible usually refers to Israel. The Bible usually refers to Israel just kind of as a corporate number. Commentator Douglas Moo puts it this way, all Israel, as the Old Testament and Jewish literature demonstrates, has a corporate significance, referring to the nation as a whole, and not to every single individual who is part of that nation. This is corporate solidarity here. So when the Old Testament mentions Israel, it doesn't necessarily mean every single person in Israel. It means Israel, who they are. He goes on to give a couple examples. You might think like the whole country was outraged at what happened. Does that mean every single solitary person in the country was outraged at whatever might have happened? No, but the majority are. Um, another example he might give, um, everyone in America saw the game last night. Did every single person in America see the game last night? Well, probably not. We say definitely not. But most America maybe did. I don't know what game there was. Just throwing that out there. Maybe there was a sports ball game. I'm not sure. Excuse me. This is where the Old Testament comes in again. As is his custom, Paul cites the Old Testament to back up what he's asserting here. So he jumps to Isaiah 59. And we can read it in context to see where we are. Isaiah 59, starting in verse 20. He says this, and a Redeemer will come to Zion, and to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. You might not have noticed it, but Paul changes a few words here. And we've talked about this before. When New Testament authors quote Old Testament, A, most of the time they're probably not using the Hebrew anyway. They're probably using the Greek version of the Old Testament, so it's already a little off. But we also see that they have the freedom to change things. Now, this is really worth saying. Only inspired writers of scripture could do this, right? We can't do this, right? Right? We can't do this. Only inspired writers of scripture can do this. So Paul seems to be making a deliberate change. And I'm sorry, but I'm gonna to have to pop in with a Ricola because my throat is not cooperating today. <coughs> I tried to turn it off and I didn't turn it off and I coughed. Sorry about that. What seems to be the case here is that Paul is morphing the prophecy of Isaiah as a proof that applies to the salvation that is happening for the Jews with this partial hardening, and then many will be saved. Again, Douglas Moo helps us here. He says, Paul seems to be making a deliberate change in Isaiah to suit the new situation in salvation history that Paul has been reflecting on throughout Romans 9 through 11. Because Paul says in Romans 11, he says the deliverer will come from Zion. But Isaiah says the deliverer will come to Zion. And so Paul deliberately makes this change to show us what? Who's the deliverer? The deliverer is going to be Jesus Christ, who's going to come out of Zion. And at the end, we see what does this mean for the Jews? When will this happen? Well, if he says, when the elect number of Gentiles has been met in salvation, when is that going to happen? When are we going to know when all the people who are supposed to be saved are saved? At the end. So this has to be talking about the end times. Think back to verse 15, where he said, what does the acceptance of the Jews again by God mean? It means resurrection from the dead. That's what we said last time. Judgment day. It seems to be a massive end times conversion of Jews to the glory of God that those branches that have been broken off and are laying on the ground, God will pick up and, as we saw last week, graft in. Look at chapter 11, verse 23 of Romans. That's exactly what he says. And even if they, Jews, do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more... Will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is what's happening. We can't forget about those branches from last week. They're on the ground. God snapped them off for their unbelief. What Paul seems to be saying here is that there will be a time at the end where the Jews will see what is going on. And it will cause them to believe. And a lot of them we see. Not every single one of them but maybe the majority of whoever is alive at that time. So here's the point, and you've seen it already. God never gives up on his people. God never gives up on his people. Caveat, when I think you're sick of hearing me say this by now, there's so much bad teaching out there right now. This does not mean, I am not saying, that current geographic Israel in 2023 is the people of God. They are not. Okay, They rejected God. The old covenant has been superseded by the new covenant. They are the dead branches that are snapped off on the ground at the face of the tree of God. But one day we might see, who knows when this will happen? Who knows when this end will come? God in his mercy will pick up some of those dead branches, breathe life into them by faith. And as we saw last week, graft them into the tree again that will happen at or near the end of Jesus's return so we need to be praying that the events that we see unfolding before our eyes in the Middle East will do just that they will serve to then bring Jews to a faith in Jesus Christ second caveat really sorry about this by the way Cancer, the gift that keeps on giving. Um, Major caveat. I am not saying that the end is coming tomorrow. I don't know when the end is coming. I don't know. I think it's going to happen for another couple thousand years. I don't believe we're living at warp speed here. I don't believe we're seeing biblical prophecies being fulfilled before our eyes. I believe we see Jesus starting to stir in the hearts and minds of people in the Middle East. It tends to do that when your nation gets attacked. I see Jesus, I see the Spirit working to do just this. Jesus still somehow has a special place in his heart. God, the Father, has a special place in his heart for the nation of Israel. That's what we've got to remember. When we get there in X thousand years from now or whatever it may be, hey, I just if it's tomorrow, that's great. I'm on the bus, that's fine. I'm just saying, I'm just my own personal thought. When we get there, it seems like this text is telling us that we will see a massive conversion of Jews that will turn to Jesus Christ by faith. And how cool is that? That God never gives up on his people. He never gives up on us Gentiles, does he? Two ways he never gives up on us. First, if you're God's and you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus Christ yet, you will. Because <laughs> he's not going to let you get away. The hounds of heaven, as Spurgeon said, will track you down. He is not going to give up on his elect. You will one day believe the gospel. You will one day. And, and parents of, of uh, prodigal sons and daughters and those who have friends and loved ones who have not bowed the knee to Jesus yet... What an encouragement that is. John 6, starting in verse 37, says, "All This is Jesus speaking. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me and raise it up on the last day. Jesus will not lose any of his elect." God never gives up on his people. Second, church, when we are God's people, he will never give up on us. We will fight sin by the power of the Holy Spirit until the day we die. Yay! Fighting for every square inch of spiritual maturity. And he will empower us to do that. And he will never give up on this. Through sickness, through trial, through tribulations, hear this, weary saints, He will never give up on you. He will hold you fast. Take encouragement. We are in 1 Corinthians for communion, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this starting in verse 7 So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By whom you were called into fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. Our perseverance is guaranteed by the perseverance of Jesus Christ. And though that day of Christ's return may be far off, we still all need to be ready to sit before our Lord Jesus Christ someday and hear Him say, "Well good, well done, good and faithful servant." We think about wanting to hear those words. And this is all because of the astounding and irrevocable mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where he goes next. Back in Romans chapter 11, in verse 28. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God... "...but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all." So some language to work through here. Paul says regarding the gospel, they, Israel, are your enemies. But regarding election, we love them. We're beloved. They are beloved because of their forefathers. How is Israel an enemy to us according to the gospel? Well, plain and simple, they don't believe it. They reject it. They don't want anything to do with it. They think we're a bunch of whack jobs. They don't want Jesus as the Messiah. They reject him. So they are enemy as regards to the gospel because they reject it. But then the bigger picture of election, God's global plan to save his people, they're our friends. They're beloved. Why? I said it last week. We wouldn't be here without Israel. We need Israel. Most of our Bible is the Old Testament, is it not? The New Covenant is based on the Old Covenant. God is still the same God. And so we realize that Jesus came through Israel, as was predicted. And so there are friends like that. They're beloved like that because of the forefathers. Then in verse 29, he says, The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, God's plan of salvation, church, cannot be stopped. God's call cannot be stopped. If you are elect, God will bring you to himself. The church will prevail in the gospel, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Our word for irrevocable also means without regret in the Greek. So so think of it this way. When God grants you salvation, he does so, so fully, so completely, It's irrevocable. But he also does so from the bottom of his heart. There's nothing, there's no regret in him whatsoever that he saves his children. Look at verse 30. Just as you are one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that they might have mercy shown to you or that. The mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. For, he explains, because just as you Gentiles, you were formerly disobedient to God and now have received mercy, why? Why? We've been hitting this for the last few weeks. Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Then God turned to the Gentiles. So the offer of salvation went to the Gentiles. That's why you've received mercy, because they were disobedient. Let's follow this. You Gentiles used to be disobedient to God. You've been granted mercy. So the Jews who have been disobedient to God, rejecting Christ, now have received mercy. In context, the mercy will be poured out when? When all of Israel will be saved. God says, this plan keeps going. I will eventually show all of my people mercy, even those broken branches that are on the ground. I will show them mercy as well. This is not news because we all are under sin. Paul's talked about it a lot in in chapter three, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But maybe one of the other verses of chapter three is more apropos here when he talks about Jews and Gentiles. What then, in, in verse, three, verse 9 of chapter 3, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. We're all in the same boat as humanity. We all were at one time disobedient. And through faith, we've received mercy. It's always through faith that we receive mercy. Salvation highlights God's Mercy. Great news, we're all sinners. Yay, we're all sinners. But God's mercy is custom designed for us sinners. Here's the point. God delights to show mercy to sinners. God delights to show mercy to sinners. Last week at the conference that I spoke at, Pastor Ed simply said, God loves sinners. I don't know why, that just stuck with me. God loves sinners. Yeah, you can kind of pick that apart theologically. Let's let's just leave it as it is right now. God loves sinners. He saves sinners. What a great thought. We shouldn't be shy to call ourselves sinners because God loves sinners and he loves to show mercy to sinners. If you're in Christ today, think about this. You were once in rebellion against God. You were once disobedient to him and his law. And his rightful authority over you, but, but, he has shown you mercy. Every day, church, that should be the banner that flies above our heads. We were once sinners that have been shown mercy. So then, we show mercy to others. Forgiven sinners forgive sin. Those who have been shown mercy treat others with mercy. Mercy is a big deal to Jesus. In Matthew 5, 7, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. He says in Matthew 9, 13 to the Pharisees, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. In the parable of the unforgiven servant In Matthew 18, Jesus teaches, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Just pause and think, how much mercy have I been showing to others? Where do I need to grow in showing mercy? Who are those people that just push my buttons? The EMRs, the extra mercy required people. We all have them in our lives and they're near and dear to us. God delights to show mercy to others. Do we delight to show mercy to others? God delights to show mercy to us sinners. There's no person in the world that can sin against you as much as you have sinned against our Heavenly Father. We should show mercy. Caveat, I'm not saying we're doormats and pushovers here. We're called to speak the truth, and that is a loving thing to do, but day-to-day, ask yourself, how's my mercy? Because what we're actually doing there is bringing glory to God. Paul, writing to Timothy, testifies to his former life of sin and, and persecution of the church of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. Look at what he says is, is the purpose of mercy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received, what's this, mercy, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And he says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. Here's mercy. Here's why. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Did you catch that? Why did Paul receive mercy? So that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. To all of those who would believe. If that guy can get mercy, then God can show mercy to anybody. And we should all be that guy. Because if God can show mercy to any single one of us, that is the display of his perfect patience. And that is for his glory. Who gets the glory and salvation? God does, not us. He saves miserable sinners and he gets the glory. And that's where Paul ends the plane. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. If you are sensing a major transition is about to drop, you are 100% correct. We're going to have one of the mother-of-all-therefores next week. If you have been tolerating Pastor Mike nerding out in theology for the last three chapters and you just want some ground-level application, please, next week's your week. It's coming. Chapter 12, we get it's wide-open waters of application. But we have to know what's going on in 9 through 11. In order when we get to 12, he says, therefore, because it's all built on 9 through 11. Verse 33 to 36 is a transitional doxology. What Paul has been unpacking for the last four chapters now overflows into praise. Look at the words here. He's just gushing when he thinks about this. When he thinks about the plan of salvation, he says, oh, and yes, oh is in the Greek. The depths of God. Three things. He says, the riches the wisdom, the knowledge, which doesn't mean material wealth, God doesn't need that, but the overflowing goodness of God himself. Wisdom, the plan of salvation, the knowledge of it all. He goes on, his judgments are unsearchable, not meaning that we should just bail out and not press into them. Of course we should. That's what we're doing now. That's what we do every week. But realize you're never going to get to the bottom of God. He's inexhaustible. His ways are inscrutable. You can't totally figure them out. Why? Well, for one, he's God, and we can't figure out God. Sometimes we Christians kind of get pithy and things. We think like, okay, well, just a little bumper sticker that we can apply to everything. No, we will never figure out God, and that's good, because that would make us God. And there's only one God. Paul runs back to the Old Testament for more words. He always needs more words. This is a mashup of a few passages but probably mostly from Isaiah 40. We read it for our Old Testament reading. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man has shown him counsel? Paul marveling in this. Who knows God? Who told God what to do? Who advised God? No one. Who can possibly completely understand God? No one. And what does it do with Paul's heart? What does it do to Paul's heart? It makes it overflow with praise. Look at verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Could there be a verse that shows God's sovereignty any more than that verse? Yet all things. All things are from him. All things are through him. All things are to him and to his glory. Meaning there's not a thing in this earth. There's not a molecule. There's not an ant. There's not a human being. That is not from him, that is not to him, that is not through him, that is not for his glory. That's where Paul, and Paul wrote 9 through 11. I wonder if he realized how hard it was. But he wrote 9 through 11, and at the end of it, he goes, I, he gets to this point where he's like, this is just, my brain just blew up. This is so amazing that God would work this plan of salvation. Everything comes from God. Everyone or everything is through God and everything is to God for his glory. Point, God's sovereignty in all things is ultimately seen in salvation because that's what makes Paul get there. When Paul just talked about 9 through 11 in the mystery of salvation and the Jews and the Gentiles, this is where he ends up on his face before God, worshiping him. Not only for his sovereignty, but for his incomprehensibility. God is unable to be completely understood. And if you come from a materialistic and a secular and an atheistic worldview, you hate that. Because if you're, if you're from that materialistic worldview that everything needs evidence, I must have full understanding of everything or otherwise it does not exist, that does not work in anything else. And it certainly doesn't work with God. God is unable to be completely understood. And those that say they can't explain God, that there's not enough evidence for God, that worldview doesn't hold up anywhere else with any other subject. Doesn't hold up in real life. Just because we don't understand something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I don't know how an airplane works, but I get on it. And I hope that it takes me to where I need to go. We don't know the laws of physics for the chairs that are holding everybody up right now, but we sit on them. We understand these things. We don't have to understand everything to verify its existence. What's being in the midst of all this is we have to let God be God. God is the one who is in charge of all things. If we could explain God, then he wouldn't be a God. And he certainly wouldn't be much of a God worthy of our worship. What is at stake here is authority. This is where the rubber meets the road. We also demand that he explain himself when bad things happen. Yet he already did. There are people in rebellion against his kingdom. They're waging war against him. Sin is alive and well. My friend R.C. said, God is not bound by rules of human logic. We remember the words of the prophet Isaiah elsewhere. In Isaiah 55, which may be coming to your, to your mind, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts your thoughts i love it and i think it's psalm 90 where he says one of the things against israel he goes here's one of the the worst things you did you thought i was like you i'm not you i'm not a human i'm entirely other and so the ways that you try and relate to me just remember don't dumb me down that much Remember, I am above you. I am working all things through me, for me, to my glory, and you don't understand that, and that's okay. That's where we have to end up. That's where Paul ends up. When he stares into the mystery of salvation, he's like, this is the Apostle Paul. He basically says, I don't don't get it, but praise God. Praise God that he does it. And yet, we are reminded From verse 21 of chapter 10, he is still holding out his hand all day to a disobedient and contrary people. All day he holds out salvation. All day for the stubborn people to reject him. All day he holds that out. What mercy. All of this wells up in the goal of salvation. We've been walking through for the last couple chapters. They should lead us somewhere and It is exactly where Paul is, again, worshiping God for his mysterious and merciful plan of salvation. This God that never gives up on his people, who delights to show mercy to sinners, whose sovereignty in all things is best and ultimately seen in salvation itself. What is the end goal of salvation? It's worship. It's worship. It's the big idea. The end goal of salvation is worship. We were literally created to worship God. Westminster asked the question, what is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and enjoy him together forever. It is literally why we preach the gospel. It is literally why Highlands Bible Church exists. One author said, missions exists, evangelism exists, because worship doesn't. People are called to worship God. He has created them to worship him. That's the, the purpose of every single human being on this earth is to worship God. But we can't because of sin. Because we turned from him. Despite him giving us everything, we turned from him and we turned it inward on ourselves, thus disabling and preventing our worship of him. And think of it this way, God is the king, he requires worship as he created us, that's the proper and legal or logical action, and because of our rejection of him, we're unable to do so, we are, we are separated, there's, there's nothing that we can do to worship, so we have this dilemma, and so what's, what's the solution? The salvation is the solution. What Paul has been laying out, really all in Romans, is the solution, We need to be reconciled so that we can do what God called us to do. Worship him, which is the best thing for us. God, in this mysterious and merciful plan of salvation, he offers the Gentile salvation that we do not deserve to be part of. And he grafts in the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one then who enables the worship of God by going to the cross, absorbing the wrath that we deserved, crucified, dead, and buried, then risen victoriously three days later so that then we now, through faith, can worship. The end goal of salvation is worship. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? For who has he given a gift to him that might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for these things that hurt our brains. Lord, that we, we look into the mysterious and the merciful plan of God. And we don't understand it. And we certainly don't deserve it. And Lord, we even look into some of the things that we think will happen when you return, how you don't ever give up on your people. And that includes all in Israel who are elect, all in Israel who will turn to you by faith. And we do pray that you will use the events that are happening right now in the Middle East to turn hearts toward yourself. Please, Lord, do that. And we pray for us that we would walk in mercy. How we realize that we have been shown so much mercy that we would show mercy towards others. And Lord, that our whole lives, when we think about our salvation, when we think about the plan of salvation, when we think about that you actually take sinners, rebels, and enemies, and make them your children, that that would well up into our hearts as worship. And we are so thankful that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have access We have the spirit. We have the ability to worship you and live lives that are full of worship for you. You deserve it all, Lord, and we ask you to enable us to do this by your spirit and through the glory of your name. Amen.